Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Charles Yu, whose novel is titled Interior Chinatown, won the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction. There's one earlier novel, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. There are two short story collections Third Class Superhero, and Sorry, Please, Thank You. Charles Yu also was, I guess, on the staff, writing staff of the first season of Westworld as a story editor, co-wrote one episode, also wrote episodes of Lodge 49, Here and Now, and a show I've never heard of, Sorry for Your Loss. Also, uh, several articles written for the Atlantic New York Times Style magazine. I want to go into your whole career, but it seems to me that in reading Interior Chinatown, what you're doing is you're mashing up about 10 different genres, from the polemic to the screenplay to science fiction and fantasy, and possibly autobiography in there, too? Mashing up is fair. Probably a little more intentional than the reality. You know, I wrote the story as it kind of came to me. Only as it sort of took shape did I realize, oh, it's it's got this and that. This bit does feel, you know, like polemic. This bit does feel, obviously, structured as a screenplay. And there are some parts that are inspired by autobiographical things, but lightly to moderately fictionalized. And in some cases, it's very fictionalized. Well, obviously, it's very fictionalized since it exists in a world that doesn't exist. But I, I was thinking, of course, about the story of the parents of the main character, Willis Wu, in particular, their stories. Does that have a, a background in the story of your parents? It does. Yeah, that's right. My parents did both immigrate to the U.S. from Taiwan in the 60s. And they did go to the places that those characters went first. My dad landed in Mississippi on an engineering scholarship uh, as a graduate student and uh, was one of only a you know, handful of Asian foreign students at that point on campus. I mean, I imagine I, I tried, I don't have great research skills, but I tried to figure out like how many were on campus when he arrived, but I didn't get very far. But from what he t- tells me, he knew everyone on campus that was a foreign student. And my mom did end up in Alabama at first. And then from there, you know, I made up stuff. Let's go back a little bit. It's been 10 years since your first novel. You've been writing a lot of short stories. And in the interim, you did work in television uh, in that first season of Westworld, which was a terrific season. But the relationship of your work in television to interior Chinatown is that where the origin of creating this kind of teleplay began? I think so. It's weird that it didn't occur to me earlier, but it's probably a good thing because I think if I had the idea just as a concept by itself, it 
wouldn't have gotten very far. It would just be this sort of conceit that I would have felt, okay, what does this have to do with what I'm trying to do here? The way it actually happened was more, I don't know, organic, I guess is the word. It just happened. You know, I, I, I heard some of the the opening lines of the book just sort of dropped in my lap. You know, it doesn't happen very often, but I just thought, oh, here's a story. And and some of those lines started falling out of my head. And, and I, from there, said, oh, if he's an actor, is this a screenplay? And so I kind of worked my way up to it. Even then, I, I was a little afraid. I was like, well, what is this? Is this a gimmick? You know, will people want to look at this or read it? But that's how it occurred to me is about early 2017, I started writing it in this version or maybe spring of 2017. And so at that point, I'd been working in TV for a couple of years. I guess it was a combination of unconsciously just being steeped in screenplays all the time. And then it sort of working its way through my subconscious, I guess. Venturia Chinatown is an examination ripping apart the stereotypes of Asian actors in Hollywood. At more recently than, say, the 30s or 40s, this is all kung fu stuff. So we're talking 60s and thereafter. Did you face any of those stereotypes when you were working on any of these TV shows where people said to you, bring in this or that, and you went, aha, stereotype? I think the short answer is no. We've come a long way from the 60s and 70s, but also just probably from 10 years ago. The rooms that I was working in on all those shows, uh, the writers are really thoughtful, talented, and sensitive people. So that to some extent, if I had personal experience to bring to the story, they would be interested in hearing it. But they didn't pigeonhole me for the most part and look to me to be the sort of mouthpiece or authority on any questions for the most part. I, I think there were moments here and there where if there's an Asian American character on screen, there's a feeling of, well, we definitely should make sure that we hear what Charlie has to say, you know, before we decide on a direction. But I think of that more as kind of a deference or desire to be inclusive or to listen than anything else. The place where I think that there's some stereotyping, but maybe it is stereotyping, is, is a little more unconscious. And it's a little more on the macro level of like, if a character is of Asian descent, specifically East Asian descent, there's sometimes a, a thought that we have to go into that character's backstory in a way that touches on their heritage or their ancestry, you know, or their country of origin that I don't think happens with, say, characters of European descent to the same extent. You know, I think the idea of like, oh, this character's from wherever, you know, this country. And maybe it's because the family immigrated more recently, in theory, in the story. So there could be good reason for that. But I, I did find sometimes that there was like a desire to to bring in an Asian American's background in a way that, you know, doesn't necessarily match with my personal experience. You know, I was born and raised in LA. My parents are from Taiwan, and I was definitely raised with a sense of identity about, you know, my ancestry and heritage. But uh, on a day-to-day -day level, it's not like I'm walking around thinking about you know, any of that. And so I don't, I don't know if that's exactly a stereotype, but I think that's a, maybe um, an interesting sort of byproduct of having this inclusiveness is that you, people want to talk about my story or stories that would be close to my experience 
in a way that doesn't always really match my actual experience. On top of that, as black actors and actresses have moved into the mainstream completely of Hollywood television and film, we don't need to know any backstory about why a judge became a judge or why a cop became a cop. Mm. It seems to me that there's there may be something going on. On the other hand, you do have characters like that one guy in the TV show Dexter, and it didn't matter that he was Asian, or the guy in Walking Dead. Right. How did ethnic issues come into play when creating the hosts, uh, the robot hosts in Westworld. Was that something you folks talked about, dealt with? It's a really good question. I don't know if there's like a statute of limitations, but there's a general like, you know, I'm not supposed to get too much into what we talked about in the room because it wasn't my show. But I think what I can say is it was definitely something that uh, the show's writing staff was conscious of and did talk about. In my mind, you know, there's a kind of decision made to generally stay away from that because we are already dealing with such a complex show and story. It's like hard enough, like, how do we uh, depict the development of consciousness and sentience among robots on screen? I always like to think to myself, it's called the hard problem of consciousness for a reason. It's a really hard problem. And the idea of a bunch of TV writers sitting around a table you know, eating snacks that we're going to find a way to like crack that problem and show it in a narrative. I love the ambition of it, but I also feel like, what were we thinking? You know, for, I think for those reasons, which are reasons of real, like practicality, you know, like you can only load your narrative with so many layers. I think there was a kind of tacit, or maybe it wasn't so tacit decision to like not address it, you know, because yes, the narrative is set in the old West, but it's not really the Old West. So this is already a kind of fantasy land. So let's also put aside questions that probably would have been, well, they would have been real questions of race in the actual Old West. So it's a, it's a fantasy on two levels in that sense. Uh, it seemed to me the story ended at the end of season two, and then it goes on to the mainland. Were those kinds of considerations, what's going to happen down the road, were those ever discussed or were you just focused on the first season and the continuation of that into the second? I only worked on season one, so I can only speak to that. And I was also the most junior writer on the staff. That was my first job in TV and I was on the bottom rung of the ladder, basically. And so I think there were conversations above my pay grade is what I'm saying. Uh, and, and the showrunners didn't share everything with us in terms of their long-term vision what we were told, you know, and I and I think they've said this in the press too, is that from the beginning, they had a map of like several seasons. They kind of knew where they were going. And I think when we got in there the first day, they, they also had a map of where the first season would end. And so we were just trying to figure, figure out as a group how to get there in the most interesting way. But they had a lot of the big milestones. They had flags planted kind of in the story. And I think the way the conversation developed, there'd be times where even if they wouldn't share it explicitly with us, the showrunners were filing things away for season two, you know, like just thinking, oh, that'd be cool for a later. So I think it's a little bit of like they have an idea and then also it's something, an idea that can evolve over time. And so, yeah, at that point, I was just like fighting to 
stay current on what we were talking about, but I think they were keeping their eye on a big picture in some sense. But I, you know, I really can't speak to what was in their heads. Let's talk specifically about interior Chinatown. It sets forth the story of a guy named Willis Wu, who is kind of stuck in this half real, half Hollywood screenplay life, dealing with the stereotypes of Asians, in particular Chinese Asians, but of course that expands outward. When you were constructing it or writing it, how did the stereotype, the idea of the Kung Fu man, of the Asian man, the um, dead Asian man, the generic Asian man, the Asiatic seductress, how did all of that come together? I think it was all kind of in a big clump in my head. And so it was a matter of extracting it from my head piece by piece. Because honestly, I think this is baggage that I've carried with me growing up. I'm 45 now, as of a couple weeks ago. Uh, so I grew up in the 80s, you know, watching 80s TV and 90s TV and movies. You just never saw Asians on screen, ever, East Asians or South Asians. And when you did, it was such a rare occurrence that you were always very excited. And then quickly that excitement would be replaced either with embarrassment, uh, because the Asian was going to be sort of a flat, sort of somewhat offensive stereotype, or best case scenario, just inconsequential, right? Just someone delivering food or with no lines. It always struck me as like, why is that such a weird occurrence? Or, or why is that such a weird feeling to see an Asian on TV? And I think, you know, one of the things that I answered for myself in the book was, it's weird because it takes you out of the reality of the show. And why does it take you out of the reality of the show? Because you never see them. It's, a, it's like a chicken and egg thing, you know? Meaning, until the moment when I saw an Asian, I wasn't sitting there thinking, hmm, I never see Asians on TV. I was just watching the show. But all those years, I've, I've been conditioned to watch shows with a version of reality of America where Asians don't exist. And then suddenly you see one, you're like, oh yeah, they do exist. That's the backdrop for sort of this feeling of like, oh, they're, they're very much in the background. And I think these roles, I've had plenty of people write to me, actors or non-actors, saying, man, I can't believe how scarily accurate it, you know, this is. I've actually played that role, you know, called whatever, henchman number five or whatever. And they come from reality. Those are the types that you, you can sort of count on two hands or one hand even. You know, at some point in history, this was like what mostly you saw on TV or film for Asians. And so it was sadly, not a lot of research was required for that. <laughs> As a white guy, I noticed all of this immediately. Yeah. You know, that you don't see Asians that when you do their, you know, dropping off the pizza or more likely being the Kung Fu muscle man of the bad guy. Right. And that's what you saw. Except for Bruce Lee in Green Hornet. Exactly. You know, when did you become aware of that? Yeah, Green Hornet was a little before my time, so that wasn't until later. But I was aware of Bruce Lee pretty young. I want to say eight or nine. Somehow I must have gotten my hands on VHS cassettes of Enter the Dragon and Fists of Fury. And I think these are rated R movies, probably because of the violence, but there's a little bit of nudity. So, Which makes me wonder, if did my parents rent it? Or was it like a friend's house? That I don't remember. But I remember watching these Bruce Lee movies pretty early on. And that was, yeah, a, a 
formative moment in terms of seeing somebody who wasn't one of those roles, right? Like you said, not delivering food, not, he, I mean, he's the hero and he's not just any hero. He's like the most badass, fierce guy. I mean, everyone liked him. Like there's no question, you know, kids of any race, there's certain pantheon level people. who's like, there's unassailably cool, right? And Bruce Lee is one of those people. And that feels really good for like a group of kids who don't have anyone, you know, no athletes, no politicians or leaders, but we don't have anyone. We don't even have like the, the side character in a cartoon. And then you have like one of the all time cool guys. I think that's why like Asian kids really latch onto that because it's like, okay, at least we have Bruce Lee. Yeah, I still feel that way. The other thing you deal with in interior Chinatown is how even as African-Americans became visible and spreading their wings in Hollywood, Asians did not. Yeah. And that's specifically the case of the characters in the TV show you create called Black and White, Turner and Green. And that reminded me of a, a play I saw called Fairview. Are you familiar with that play? No. It's a play that examines white and black relationships and ends with a character in the play stepping out of character, telling all the white people to climb onto the stage, leaving all the black people in the audience. And a few days later, I was seeing another play and I was talking to an Asian American woman and she said, what am I? Because Asians were not part of the sequence. If you went to the play and you were Asian, you weren't there. Does that make sense to you? It does. I mean, I'm kind of glad I didn't know about this because it probably would have wrapped my head in, in a pretzel already more than it was when I was trying to write it because it's so on point. I mean, it sounds like a cool play, but I think it goes to, I think this is your point, goes to exactly the kind of invisibility that I was trying to explore. You know, like, why does that happen? And why does it persist even in a time where there's been lots of progress? Like you said, there's lots of Asians in leading roles. And yet it's very easy to leave Asians and other groups that aren't black and white out of the discourse when we're talking about race. What does that do not just to the to the Asians who are watching it, but what does it sort of do to the whole conversation? The character of Willis Wu lives in something called the SRO, which is located above a restaurant called the Golden Palace. I had never heard of an SRO. What is that? SRO is a single room occupancy so it's basically a place where you can rent just a room, you know, and you have a shared bathroom down the hall and a shared kitchen. So I guess it's a little bit like, you know, some dorm rooms. They're common in some Chinatowns, partly because I think they're more affordable than other ways of living. And you wouldn't just have necessarily a person, one person living. Sometimes you could have a whole family living in a room that really is not very big. So that's where the characters live in this story. For me, it was it was working on a couple of levels, working as a literal place, and it was also working as a kind of conceptual place where the the background Asians of this story are tra are trapped. The use of real life, this fictional place, and the metafictional difference between real life and TV. How conscious were you of trying to blend it in such a way that it all made sense? Yeah, yeah, I struggled with it making sense. Do you mean both as a kind of actual episode of TV, or do you mean as a book? 
more as a book than an actual okay. Okay. episode of TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as an episode of TV, it vacillates because characters die, but they don't die. No, you're, you're right. As a TV episode, there was a thought early on, like, oh, it would be cool if this actually, if you just took out the actual bits, also played as a real episode. And I kind of gave up on that pretty quick because I thought, one, this is hard enough what I'm <laughs> trying to do here. And two, I didn't know if I could wrench the story in such a way that would it would fit perfectly to also work as a TV episode. Probably I could have, but I think it would have taken even longer. But as a book, it was like really um, a challenge. And I had a lot of help from my editor and my book agent. They were both reading drafts of this as it came along. And we had a lot of discussions about, does this make sense? The big one was, what is the reality of what's going on? Is this a show? Is this an actual show? Like, how are we to understand what happens, you know, when Willis walks from one place to another? Is this like, are we on a, the Warner Brothers back lot or, or what, you know, or is this Charlie Kaufman land? Is this a, and, and so they pushed me to really try to articulate what I was driving at here, what, what this is supposed to feel like to the reader. And, and you know, I, I think there are places where the rules get a bit squishy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if this were sci-fi, you could definitely not call it hard sci-fi. I don't, and and uh, in, in terms of, maybe that's not the best analogy, but, you know, people have noticed, like, you, you seem to start out one way, and then now on page 83, the character is doing this, which I didn't think was allowed, and the rules of black and white. And Fair point, you know, and so I guess my answer slash sort of catch-all defense to like logic problems is I meant to do that. <laughs> I was trying to have it both ways. I think the ambiguity to some extent is intentional and it's that Willis and the other characters really do live in this kind of amalgam or composite of a physical place and a mental place as do people. I think that's sort of how we live, right? We walk around in our own reality, which we sort of project onto physical reality. And so, yeah, that's what I was going for. I think what happened with me was about halfway through the book, I kind of like threw up my hands and said, I'm just going to read the book, which is what you do in a lot of TV shows or films, is you find to say, the only answer to this is to just go with it and don't worry about it. But you have to take that leap and say, I'm not going to worry about it. At least that's a, me as a reader. I'm grateful to you for doing that. And that's definitely the, the best outcome for, for me as the writer, that someone is willing to, is generous enough and, and willing to go along and hopefully get something out of that. Do you think that having worked on a time travel novel where paradoxes overwhelm whatever you think of time travel might have helped you in working this as well as the paradoxes involved in working on Westworld. As to the first part about time travel, that's really interesting. I don't think anyone's actually ever brought up that specific point, but I think there's something to that for sure. I think having played in that space, which has all of these constraints, of course, and I don't think I did a similar thing, but I think there was a kind of analogous approach there too. I am not going to try to define overly rigorous rules about time travel here because what I'm really interested in is the story, you know, and the characters. That said, I would like it to have enough internal consistency, even if that's very, very kind of 
fuzzy kind of you know consistency that at least you could step back and say well i guess i see what the rules are even if the rules are a little squiggly so i think that yeah ultimately i had to be comfortable with not nailing down every single logic point and having a more kind of general scheme to it and i think the west world of it helped in that tv is obviously very much more collaborative than fiction writing and that helped me because i kind of had to assemble a little bit of like a writer's room in my own head you know i had to get used to the idea of competing voices and shooting down my own ideas and imagining an internal showrunner who's like going to you know knock down my pitches or co-writers in the room who are going to poke holes in my logic that helps and i think another thing that helped is watching you know the showrunners on westworld are so meticulous about the way they constructed that you know at least the first season that i worked on and we talked through everything for hours endlessly you know weeks and months and having that kind of patience to get it right uh, i don't know that i'm not saying i sort of capable of that kind of endurance but actually going through a process that was that painstaking you know is good training for like trying to do your own work cuz you know it it uh it just reminded me and also taught me a lot of things about like how do these other writers approach story how do they work how do they critique their own work yeah both of those things were were really helpful i think charles you let's go back into your career you began as a lawyer and a poet and wound up writing short fiction. What happened? Yeah, I wrote poems in college as an undergrad, and that was my minor, actually. And then I just stopped. I stopped writing poems after I graduated. I don't know what it was, but maybe it was just like something that felt like I wanted to do during under the safe umbrella of college. And once I was in the real world, I thought, I don't know. But I, I never wrote I never wrote a poem after I graduated. But I think in retrospect, what I realized is that I wanted to write short fiction, but I was, I was just like breaking up the lines in my, in my stories and writing very short stories that I just would randomly hit the enter key. And so I, I think all along I was trying to write fiction. And right when I graduated from law school is really when I started to write stories. I, I think what I was looking for was a kind of creative outlet because I was working all these hours as a lawyer. And so I just scribbled these little things in the margins of notepads, or I'd send myself little emails, you know, with a line or something that just kind of interested me. And they eventually started turning into these weird experimental little short stories. Had you had a background reading science fiction? Some. I'd read some Asimov and Bradbury and uh, some fantasy. Like I read some Piers Anthony and uh, I played D&D, &D, you know, read comics. I don't know that I was like heavy, heavy into science fiction. I think a guy I read in college or a writer I read in college was Richard Powers. I read some Jonathan Latham. I think they kind of opened my eyes to this kind of use of science fiction or science fiction tropes, even in narratives that you maybe didn't necessarily think of as science fiction. I'd read some of that in college as well. How did you get involved in writing for television? It was, you know, somewhat accidental, but it, it was a slow, gradual process of meeting people. So basically, after my first novel was published, you know, I was working as a lawyer, but I had a little bit of interest in film or TV adaptation of that book. So I started working with, in addition to my publishing agent, got like a TV film rights agent. And so they started to send me on meetings at first, you know, specifically around this book, but slowly I'd meet enough people 
or people would become interested in other things I'd written. And so I'd go on kind of more general meetings with executives or the kinds of people who could hire you to write things. And so I did that for, you know, three, four years, just thinking, well, these are great. It's fun, you know, fun to take a couple hours away from the office if I can sneak off and go meet somebody. And it's like a couple times a year, really. But I eventually met an executive at HBO who somehow got my name in the mix for the Westworld job. So that's really how it happened is, you know, I was at work one day and my agent called and like, would you want to go for a meeting to try to get a job on this writing staff? And I thought, uh, yes, <laughs> but also, you know, like, what are the odds? I just thought this is crazy, but why not? And that led to all the other work. Have you written screenplays yourself? I am working yeah, on a few projects now that are for development. Nothing, you know, officially has been like picked up to series, but Interior Chinatown is being developed with Hulu. So I'm writing a pilot based on the book to hopefully be a show for them. And a couple of other similar projects where I think I'm not allowed to talk about it, electrocute my chair or something. But uh, yeah, but yeah, so that that's that's only in the last couple of years. I've After I think having worked in writer's rooms for a while, people will sort of take a chance and say, well, you know, you've learned enough. Like, can you try to do this for your own project? How has the pandemic affected your career that way? I mean, it's changed it. I definitely do a lot less driving because I used to have to drive to LA for all these meetings and now I get to just Zoom with people. So that's nice. You know, I miss aspects. I miss people, obviously. But sometimes you like, you know, go into a fancy office and you get a bottle of water. But other times you get to like actually go have a meal with someone and it's it's sort of fun. You get to know someone like an executive or a producer or something. But for the most part, it just means like I get to sit in my house and read and write and see my family more. So I love that I'm actually both more productive and home more luckily or maybe unluckily for me. But all of my projects are not yet at the point where they're like in production. You know, I'm still very much just in the writing phase. So last year I had the good luck of just writing a lot. You know, as as this thing drags on into this year, I don't know if that will change, but for now, it's mostly just given me more writing time. Uh, are you working on another novel? I'm like, yeah, lightly tiptoeing around ideas. But if I even think that I am, then I know I'll either get writer's block or I'll jinx it. <laughs> so uh, I'm like kicking around ideas. One thing I noticed in reading Interior Chinatown is um, over the years, I've had discussions whenever I've interviewed him with a writer named David Shields, who spends a lot of time talking about metafiction and new ways to write. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, a little bit, yes. He edited an anthology that I had a story in, I, I think. The reason I mention this is because you are part of what seems to be, obviously you're not thinking in those terms, a kind of movement away from straight-on narrative fiction, uh, what he calls big bloated novels. So I guess my question to you is, is that what you read as well? Is that where your interest lies or it just happens to be what you're writing? I mean, I, I certainly love to dive into a big novel, but I do think, yeah, my reading tends toward the more eclectic or things that are playing with form or aren't that kind of 400 page third person straight ahead narrative whatever that means, you know, I don't mean to make it sound like there's a whole class of books that are all homogenous in that sense, but I tend to look for things and I'm like, oh, 
what is this trying to do with structure or what is this trying to do with point of view or genre, you know? Charles, you, we've been stuck in this pandemic universe for a year. Even with the vaccine, we have no idea when we'll get out of it. You said in a uh, article in The Atlantic, what is normal life anyway? What kinds of TV shows do you watch that you would recommend as someone who's been working on shows like Westworld or writing books like Interior Chinatown? My wife and I have found ourselves, probably like other people, faced with 500 choices and then going towards none of them. We'll just either leave the news on or you know look for a documentary because for whatever reason, diving into a narrative in the last few months has been harder. One thing I watched last year that I really enjoyed was The Great on Hulu. Uh, I loved its tone. I thought it was smart and funny and just unexpected in so many ways. I think that's a really cool thing that is possible on TV and probably no other medium, you know. Sort of the serial nature of it and the incongruity between the visuals and the tone and the you know historical backdrop with modern sensibility and humor, I think that was a, just a cool, unexpected find for me. Novel versus short story, which you like writing more? Can I say neither? They're equally difficult. I guess I like finishing things. So I have finished more stories, short stories in my life than I have novels. I like starting novels. If I could only pick one to write from here on out, it would be short stories. Because you can finish them. Yeah, I'm more likely to actually produce them. Whereas there's no guarantee I'll ever finish. I mean, this, this last one took almost seven years and it's pretty short. But then also you've got your television and screen work. If Interior Chinatown did become a uh, TV series, would you be the showrunner? I would like to be. I think that would be the plan if you know things move forward. I'd also be happy to work with someone else. If someone else had a vision and I, I could just write, someone else wanted to showrun it, maybe I'd learn from them. And you'd be on the writing staff? Yeah, in theory. But I think as of right now, the, the idea is that I'm supposed to write this and you know who knows what they'll do one configuration that i've seen i think is fairly common is if someone like me creates a show but has not show run something they can pair me with someone who has done it so there's kind of a team and so that would be cool that that's actually i think what happened on lodge 49 is jim gavin this you know fiction writer who created this really great show uh hadn't run a show so they paired him with um peter Ocko and they made this really special show Getting to see the way that dynamic worked, I think that was really cool. You've been listening to an interview with Charles Yu, whose novel Interior Chinatown won the 2020 National Book Award for fiction. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.